Hello and you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on today's show, I'm going to be discussing all things ice giants, so get warm and ready for some frozen facts about these funny little worlds. Andrew will be chatting with our special guest, Jesse Dotson, and he will cover the goings-on in the news from Exoplanets this month. But first, let's introduce the Exocast family. My name's Hannah Wakeford, and I'm at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore studying the atmospheres of exoplanets. I'm Hugh Osborne, and I study transiting exoplanets from the south of France in Marseille. Uh, and I'm Andrew Rushby, a postdoc at the University of California, Irvine, where I study the climate of small worlds in the galaxy. Excellent. So how's everybody been doing over the last month? Great. Um, I, I've, got a, I've got a lead, I think, with the, uh, with the highlight of my month, as I'll be quite excited to talk about this on the show, actually, uh, is that we had, um, here at UCI, we had a visit from Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell who was in town cool. to uh, to give the annual Reiner's Lecture. So she's, uh, for those who aren't familiar with her, she's the discoverer of pulsars back in 1967, and also uh, a champion for equality and diversity in STEM. So it was great having her um, on the campus. She was visiting the department, but she also gave a, a public lecture, which was very inspiring. Um, and uh, some folks even had a ch- chance to present some of their work directly to her in kind of a coffee break type informal setup so I was probably more nervous for that than you know my AGU <laughs> or, 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 or you know large talks that I've done in the past uh, and I must admit I was I was fanboying quite hard but it was great um, and yeah really great to have her here so I'd, I'd, I had to lead with that as an example and I even managed to get in a little bit about pulsars and exoplanets given their somewhat interconnected history um, you know talking about the controversy about which planets first and um, yeah it made for some good conversation. What did she say the first planet is then? Uh, well, I think they, they, yeah, they went with um, the, I can't remember the name of the pulsar, obviously, because they have even more uh, enigmatic or, or esoteric names than exoplanets, but they do give the pulsars great nicknames. And this one was called Lich. Um, and it had three planets called Draugr, um, uh, Poltergeist, and one more, uh, all named after, you know, kind of Greek entities. So they've got they've got a good idea when it comes to naming their planets, uh, I think. That's because the there's so things. few of them, it's a little bit easier. Seven. <laughs> I think I counted we're, seven. We're approaching four thousand planets. Try coming Indeed. up with that many names. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fine with the number system. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, that's true. What about you, Hannah? How's your how was your month? Uh, well, I kicked off my month by coming to visit you in Irvine. Uh, I, I was did. I should out have led there. with that. <laughs> no, no, you're cool. I, I can leave with that. Uh, I was out there. I was invited to give a talk for the National Academies of Science Cavley Symposium. Um, so I was out there and I, I popped by to see Andrew whilst I was there before heading up to UC Santa Cruz for a week to work with Natasha Battaglia, uh, who we've had on the show previously. And I also got the chance to meet two big fans of the show, Zafar and Elizabeth, who are undergraduates at UC Santa Cruz. So shout out to them. Um, Gave them some stickers whilst I was there. Uh, So it was really great. It was a great week. And I since then just been working on my Hubble proposals. So that's that's going to be my life for the next two weeks. So I'm good and sorted for this month. What about you, Hugh? Yeah, it's been a standard month. I had a a few days uh, meeting in Cambridge doing like early Plato stuff. So I mean, jesse might share this as well but like a few years before launch you have a quite a boring phase of a mission so we're just go talking through documentation and pipelines and all of these kind of things which you know i'm personally just waiting for the real data but um i have to kind of you know work a bit at the moment to make sure that that data that comes through is is how we want it to be so um that's kind of been my month just trying to uh sort out some some open questions for what plato's going to do yeah, it's good to build the build the groundwork, I guess, even if it isn't maybe the most exciting part of the Oh project. yeah, definitely. Well, someone has to. Well, um, I think we could probably head on to uh, what is my favourite part of the show, uh, the time when we get to welcome a friend of the show into our, our virtual studio. So uh, this month we are privileged to be joined by Dr. Jesse Dotson, uh, an astrophysicist at NASA's Ames Research Centre and the current project scientist for NASA's K2 mission. 
Uh, before K2, Jesse was also the instrument scientist for the Flying Infrared Observatory Sophia, as well as the branch chief for the astrophysics branch at Ames, where she established the Kepler Guest Observer Office. Uh, she also leads uh, or led uh, Ames Asteroid Threat Assessment Project, which uh, we'll ask her about a little bit later regarding asteroidal Armageddon. So uh, welcome, Jesse. Uh, hi, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you for saying that. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, I know you've had to take some time out of a rather busy workshop to, to come and chat with us, so that's uh, much appreciated. Um, it must have been a particularly busy month for you, actually, with the fifth Kepler and K2 science conference, uh, and also the fact that I think this month marks Kepler's 10th year in space. So were there any uh, special events that kind of marked that anniversary or uh, was it just business as usual? Lots of science. Well, the, the whole science conference really kind of marked that event and, and really that's why we planned it to be that week. The 10th anniversary of launch was actually the Wednesday of the conference. And so, you know, the... I didn't think it was a coincidence somehow. <laughs> no, not, not even remotely a coincidence. And, uh, uh, you know, when we thought about how we wanted to mark the 10th anniversary of launch, we couldn't think of a better way to do it then getting together and celebrating the science output, quite honestly. Fantastic, fantastic way to put it. And I mean, we, I, we on the show, we talk about Kepler at least every episode. Uh, and we've also said a number of farewells, whether it's, you know, end of fuel or the final image. I feel like I'm always saying goodbye. Uh, I don't know, I've got some emotional connection, clearly. Um, but, you know, as, <laughs> as the mission you know, draws earnestly to a close now, could you... Um, touch on some of those unique challenges, you know, the logistics and, and the issues that involved with closing out uh, a mission of, of this scale that's been running for this long with this much data and this many people involved. How do you even go about doing that? Um, that's a great question. And I have to say that um, I actually don't think of it as closing out the mission. I think of it as turning the mission over to uh, the scientists who are gonna keep using the data forever. I hope. I mean, that's, I know they won't use it forever. People, you know, will combine it with tests and Play-Doh, but really I don't think of it as an end, but as a handoff. And so- Because there is still hundreds of gigabytes of, of data out there, you know, waiting to be analyzed. Absolutely. And the Kepler data, uh, we're at a phase in, I think, uh, stellar astrophysics and exoplanet where a lot of times the data is more powerful when you combine it with other missions, like Kepler or K2 plus Gaia, or you know Kepler or K2 plus Apogee. And you know the, I think all those combinations just let us look at the data and get new science out of it. And that's gonna continue on for quite some time. Um, so the things we're doing now are we're doing, uh, the Kepler data is from the original Kepler field, that's pretty much all settled and delivered to the archives, well-documented. We're in the process of reprocessing all the K2 data because we got smarter from the first K2 campaign to the last K2 campaign. So we're reprocessing that data, gonna get that shipped off to the archives. We've got some documentation to clean up. We've got some uh, user tools. We're trying to leave a really robust and easy to use set of um, Python tools for people to dig into the data. Um, so like I said, it's, it's a handoff, not a closing. That's a, a very positive and, and a heartwarming way to look at it, I think, uh, and, and the correct way. Um, and I think does um, a lot of that perspective come from the fact that you have the Guest Observer Office there who's been doing a lot of work to support the community in terms of giving them those tools, those Python tools, uh, to help them to, to process their data so they don't have to go about doing it themselves. And, I, and you were instrumental in setting, setting that office up. Uh, yeah, so uh, the, my very first involvement with Kepler was um, the summer before, so about nine months before launch, um, the program scientist kind of called up Ames and said, uh, you guys need a guest observer office. And uh, I got tapped to set it up. And at that point it was, I had like half time to set it up and started just from the beginning. We need a website, we need a call. What do guest observers need to know about the data? And to kind of like see it from that little start to what our guest observer program has become has been really pretty awesome um, to see the evolution. And because, and, um, you know, by the time we switched over to K2, we had gone from a mission that had a prime science focus to really understand the um, demographics of exoplanets to being entirely community driven. Um, and so that was a pretty cool evolution to live through. 
and I see Tess is now taking on that community-driven kind of approach as well with their with their guest observer office. Absolutely. If it wasn't the personnel that are actually quite the same in some cases, but you know the software and the lessons that are learned as well. So it seems to be the the new paradigm for going going forward is the community-driven approach to to these big missions, which is I, I think a fantastic way. Yeah, of, uh, of organizing. Yeah, and so I'm glad you mentioned tests. Like where I am this week, I'm actually at the Test Ninja Two workshop. And when you think about handing off Kepler to the community, Tess is actually a part of that. I mean, the folks in the Guest Observer Office for Tess uh, used to be in the Guest Observer Office at Kepler. They're using the same tools. Many of the same people use the data. Um, I'm working on a little side project with a. Uh, uh, a grad student at Chicago to actually look at the targets that both uh, K2 and TESS have looked at because there are a handful of, I mean, a couple thousand targets that both telescopes have looked at so far. Okay, I was just listening to, uh, if there was any science questions from you or, or Hannah there. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many science questions, but uh, I'm going to let you keep going on because I'm really interested in trying to understand that handoff process a little bit more because there is a lot of things that have to stop happening and that have stopped happening since Kepler stopped taking science data and trying to understand what those things that have stopped and what things are starting. Well, you know, the most obvious thing is we, we don't do proposer calls or reviews anymore. We don't manage targets. <laughs> Saves a lot of time for you. <laughs> we don't manage target lists anymore. Um, uh, you know, our folks who operated the spacecraft for us at Ball and at LASP, um, they're in closeout and they're turning off computer systems. Um, they're kind of on their way out the door. And it's really, um, it's a, a gentle glide slope, right? The spacecraft people roll off first and then, uh, uh, you know, the, then you finish data, processing the data and the folks who run the pipeline, they roll off and, you know, I think the guest observer office are going to be some of the last people out the door, but it's kind of a gradual slope. Um, and so there's the getting data out, there's getting the, tool, the documentation out, there's getting the tools uh, satisfied. And then, of course, NASA being NASA, we have some programmatic reviews we have to get ready for and go and kind of like say, yes, yay, verily, we have um, uh, you know, turned off the spacecraft in a safe manner. Yay, verily, we have delivered all these products that we said we were going to deliver. Um, <laughs> a very NASA kind of thing. But. And is that, that, is that similar to kind of the ramp up that you do towards a mission as well? Oh, you know, uh, the ramp up is, uh, there are similarities, but there's also differences. Um, like, I know the stage that Hugh is in, you're like, oh, when is this going to come? You know, there's a lot of getting the documentation <laughs> together, getting your plans together. Um, you know, at some point between now and about six months before launch, in my experience, you get from a point of, oh my God, when is this going to happen? To like, oh my God, oh my God, we can't possibly get everything done before launch. How are we going to get here? Um, Right. And that kind of panic. We're experiencing that that thing at, with James Webb at the moment. Exactly. <laughs> and so, at least with my experience with Kepler, that kind of panic lasted, you know, from, you know, uh, you know, somewhere between nine to six months before launch through to about six months after launch. And then you start to go, okay, wait a minute, we know how to do this. And then you start to actually get to dig into the science and start to realize what you've got, what you've got. Do you think uh, TESS is more or less prepared than Kepler was? Because I guess TESS has the all the experience from the Kepler guys, but at the same time, it was a much shorter duration between this mission is going to happen and this mission is launched. Um, I think that, for instance, their guest observer program, I think, was m much more prepared than the Kepler guest observer program was because right. um, there were a lot of lessons to be learned there. I think in terms of um, you know building a spacecraft, operating a spacecraft, uh, I'm sure that team had a few lessons to learn. I think every team does. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, yeah. it sounds like, well, you know, you're just doing high precision photometry with a smaller but more telescopes. It's hard every time, right? We do, new, we do hard things, and they're, the first time you do something, it's not easy. Right. Mm -hmm. That's very true. So um, changing tack slightly, uh, listeners who tuned in uh, last month would have heard us chatting with uh, Dr. Joe Barstow about being a new mother and scientist. So uh, Jesse, you're also a mom, uh, but to a teenager, which um, I don't envy you for. I'm sure it has its own <laughs> very unique challenges. I could probably take up a whole other show. Um, but 
could you uh, or would you mind telling us a little bit about your experience uh, in terms of navigating the science landscape as you know as a mother over the last you know 15 16 years or so and you know are things getting better are they getting worse is it positive well so uh my daughter's uh, 15 and a half which uh i have... it, it... 15, you still have to add the half on. I was going to say, did she insist insist you add the half, right? (laughs) It's still really important. I remember like, you know, when you're five, it's really important as five and a quarter is really key. But I didn't realize that still happened at 15. So it does at 15 and a half for a very special reason, which is in California at 15 and a half, you can get your learner's permit to drive. Ah. So like 14 and a half didn't matter. 15 and a half does. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, it's hard for me to tell whether the landscape is getting better or if it's uh, just getting easier for me as I move into more senior positions. Um, And uh, because there's a certain point when you're in a more senior position and, uh, you know, people can't really give you a hard time about this stuff anymore, even if they wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) And um, at one point that actually... I actually realized that and um, tried to kind of change my approach a little bit where I didn't try to be like a scientist or a mom and never have the two things meet and kind of like never really let, you know, my science people know about the stuff I was dealing with at home. It's not like I walked around talking about it all the time, but I did try to do things. I have tried to do things just to normalize it, to make it just like, it's just part of your life. Like people have car trouble. People have to go and pick up your kid from school because they fell down on the playground and they need to be taken to the doctor, right? It's just, um, and I think one of the things I was able to do when I was a branch chief, and this was actually very scary the first time I did it. So branch chief is a little bit like the NASA version of uh, division chair only there's fewer students and more paperwork. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sure, yeah. It's kind of my equivalency there. And one of the scariest things I did early on is I had to speed home because traveling four and a half days a week. So I was, you know, the parent in charge. And uh, if my kid was sick, I had to stay home. And there's 60 people in the branch in between civil servants and postdocs and uh, uh, research scientists, and um, one of the scariest things I did early on is I had to speed home because my kid was sick, and I sent out an email to 60 people saying, uh, I'm not in school today because my kid is sick. I mean, I'm not, I'm not at work today because my kid is sick. And that was really scary to do the first time, and then I just started to do it, and then it just became normal, right? And so I think... Uh, it's kind of been cool to start at a point where I was a little nervous about whether how being a mom would be accepted by my colleagues to just kind of making it a normal thing. And I wonder if there's some some transferable skills uh, that you pick up from raising a teenager to managing PhD scientists. (laughs) I'd imagine there certainly is, right? Um, yeah, Bargaining al- and... although I think I think a lot of what I learned was when she was a toddler. That was really a really useful phase. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's better or worse. Uh, are we all toddlers or are we all teenagers? I really don't think either of them's a good choice. <laughs> but I think toddlers are more fun. <laughs> toddlers are more fun, but you know you have to learn how to. Uh, how should I put it? Toddlers, you have to learn how to uh, say no in a way they can hear it. Ah, same as scientists. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, but I have to say one of the things that, uh, looking back, I've really enjoyed about being both a mom and a scientist is uh, having the other helps me keep them both in perspective, right? Um, doesn't matter how bad something is at work, you go home and your kid still needs to be fed and you still need to fight over homework or whatever delightful thing needs to happen at home. And on the other hand, you can have that homework fight and then you come to work and you get to, you have to think about something completely different. So for me, the balance has helped a lot in both realms, I think. And very similar to, to what Joe said as well, that perspective, very useful. 
Well, if I could ask you to don yet another one of your many, many uh, hats uh, and change topic again very slightly. Uh, we were actually joined uh, quite a few episodes ago now by Dr. Dan Angerhausen, uh, who, who touched on some of the exoplanet-related work carried out by Sophia. And you worked with Sophia as an instrument scientist for some time. So I guess the, the firstly, the big question is, what kind of work did you do with Sophia? And secondly, crucially, did you arrive before or after the coffee maker was installed? <laughs> I remember Dan saying that was a big thing. <laughs> so Chairs and a coffee maker, I believe, were the things. <laughs> so uh, most of the work I did on Sophia was before it started to fly, actually. Ah, I see. Interesting. Um, I've actually uh, worked in various uh, uh, roles on three different uh, specific Sophia instruments. Uh, one that never flew, actually two of them never flew. Um, one was canceled uh, long before it got to the point of getting in the airplane. The other one was then modified into the third instrument I worked on, which was Hawk, which was a far infrared photometer. Before it flew, was modified into a uh, far infrared photometer and polarimeter. So I worked on a spectrometer, a photometer, and a polarimeter. Um, uh, on the instrument side. And then I also uh, did a, a tour of duty as the NASA instrument scientist, which kind of the role there was to kind of take a look at, uh, I was the NASA person kind of taking a look at the instruments that were being developed by various groups, and then also helping them interface with the observatory to make sure that all those connections were being made. But all of that was before flight. So did you ever get to um, did you ever get to fly? Which is another indication of all of the things that have to happen before you make any instrument, whether it be on a plane or on the ground or in space. There's just so much stuff that has to go into that. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot a lot that goes into it. Um, uh, I did get to fly once to answer Andrew's question, uh, and not with an instrument I had worked on, and not for any science. But this was when I was branch chief, and um, we had a VIP from headquarters who was going to fly, and someone decided that uh, the VIP needed an escort from NASA management, um, and like, like everyone in the chain above me had something else to do, and I was like, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> and the coffee yeah, maker was installed. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I remember Dan, Dan focused on that uh, a weird amount, so <laughs> I thought I'd just bring it up. It was obviously a big event. For um, uh, and then finally, I did touch on it in your intro, and it's, and it's something uh, I maybe wanted to end with in case it's bad news. Um, but what, you, uh, you led AIM's Asteroid Threat Assessment Project, which sounds, which sounds fascinating and extremely worthwhile. Um, could, you, could you maybe summarize your findings, but maybe skip to the bit where you tell us how likely it is we're going to go the way of the dinos? Yes. <laughs> so um, the Asteroid Threat Assessment Project at AIM's is actually, it's still ongoing, uh, and it actually has four it has four components, and I lead one of the components that is kind of like the planetary science side, where we try to uh, do studies and do inferences about what are the physical properties of near-Earth asteroids and potential impactors, and focus really on the ones that you need to know if you want to estimate how much damage you're going to get, um, which is, you know, there's overlap between that and what you want to study if you want to understand the evolution of or history of the solar system, but it's not a one-to-one. -one. Um, and uh, there's other uh, groups at AIMS, like we have folks from our entry systems division. They're, they usually uh, use their tools to understand how spacecraft uh, interact with the atmosphere on re-entry, and they're modifying their tools to work with things that go much faster are much bigger and for which you do not have a mechanical drawing for, <laughs> which is a big <laughs> job. Um, there's also uh, one of the groups that, uh, out of the supercomputer division, where they are really good at doing risk models. And so they have models that they essentially virtually impact the Earth with millions and millions of asteroids. And we can kind of do statistic statistical studies in terms of you know, what properties matter, what properties don't matter. Um, what kind of things do you need They're to track? They're the Earth Insurance Company. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> They're insurance estimators. Exactly. How much is this going to cost us? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's a very interesting insurance problem, if you want to think about it that way, because it's a very unlikely event. 
but it's an event that has a very, very large impact, right, when it does happen. So, you know, if you want to amortize it, you know, asteroids kill two people per year. But what that really means is they kill none for many, 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 many years. And then at one point they would kill many people. And so um, it's a... Is, is the two people per year accurate? Because, you know, I mean, sharks, that means sharks are slightly more dangerous than asteroids, right? <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> it, it depends on a bunch of assumptions you make. It's something in that range if you amortize it over, depending on yeah. your assumptions. Um, it's okay. Vending machines have killed more humans every year than, than asteroids do. It's fine. <laughs> it is, Ex unless you have a bad year, right? That's the problem. Unless you have unless a bad year. Unless you've got year. a bad, bad year, right? <laughs> Bad exactly. years for vending machines or for asteroids? That's the question. Both, both. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. I, th I think this is an example of, of why people need you know, statistics in schools. <laughs> High-impact, high low-probability event. Yeah, it's, it's a, that's a challenge to communicate, even to people who are very invested in the issue, you know, kind of trying to get them out of the two people per year and actually think about, well, let's look at it in terms of, you know, what's the probability of having this many or more people uh, impacted, you know, on this time scale or longer, right? I mean, you have to start to be a little more in depth to understand your real risks. Um, but yeah, so uh, next month I get to go to the Planetary Defense Conference. There's actually a conference every other year where people get together and do talk about the risk modeling, talk about uh, uh, mitigation missions, uh, where what you would do if you actually wanted to move an asteroid out of the way. Um, talk about uh, near okay. asteroid. This is Michael Bay territory here. <laughs> Near-Earth near asteroid uh, detections and surveys. Um, so it's it's a pretty active field, actually. And the thing I really enjoy about the part of it I work in is it's very interdisciplinary, right? I get to work with planetary scientists and re-entry engineers and people who are very, very good at doing computer models. And I really enjoy the interdisciplinary work when I get a chance to do it. It sounds fascinating. They should make movies about that. Um, it, it was everything that I had, not to mention the movie I'm that I'm sorry. sure we're all thinking about. I can't about. help it. <laughs> you know I can't help it. Especially when you said mitigation missions. At least, you know, the studies are being done so that we were not just going to send Bruce Willis, right? Yeah, no, we're not, we're not going to send Bruce Willis. I don't know what no. the problem is. <laughs> or, or, at least, or at least we have no model for that, so... <laughs> But we do. It was uh, circa 1998. Um, 97. Willis et al. I joke. So, uh, Hugh or Hannah, did you have any uh, outstanding questions for Jesse? No, I, I don't have any questions, but I would like to say to our viewers that Jesse has won multiple NASA Leadership Awards, so it would be very privileged to have her on the show talking to us about all the different roles that she's taken uh, throughout her career and, and how being an astro mum throughout that has helped because that's really, really nice to hear and it's nice to know and I think our viewers appreciate that. So thank you. Happy to be here. So uh, so with that, I hope I um, I managed to cover all of your, well, some of your illustrious career anyway, Jesse, and um, just say thank you for being on the show again. And next up on the show, Hannah is going to take uh, a trip out into the distant reaches of various solar systems to tell us a little bit about ice giants. Yeah, so uh, I decided that I want to talk about these ice giants because I've been focusing on them a lot recently and I recently wrote an article for the Planetary Society's Planetary Report on them. So they're, they're definitely at the top of my head right now. So I wanted to share that with our viewers as well because they're really fascinating objects. And to start with, uh, ice giants really come from the two planets in our solar system, Uranus and Neptune, which were first visited by Voyager in the late 80s. So I, I'm pretty certain just to make all of our older listeners feel even older, all of us were born around that time when Voyager 2 was passing by Uranus and Neptune. And it actually took three years for it to travel between those two planets. And we think of our outer solar system as being, you know, one after the other, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. But in fact, they're very, very far apart from each other. And it takes it took three years to get from Uranus to Neptune back in the late 80s. So this is, this is just vast different distances in our own planetary system our own solar system. This is 
Neptune's out 30 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So that's a really, really hard thing to imagine and put into perspective. Now, this visit in the late 80s by Voyager 2 was the first and last visit to the ice giants in our solar system. Since then, we have not had any close-up views of these planets, which is a little bit disappointing. Uh, but at the same time, they are within the reach of our ground-based telescopes and space-based telescopes orbiting the Earth. And that's what we've been using to try and understand these very strange worlds since the 80s and trying to explore what their atmospheres are like. Now, why is this important? Why do we need to understand these distant giant planets? Well, one of the things that we've learned from the Kepler mission, which we will keep mentioning for many, many episodes to come, it will keep coming up because it's so important. What it taught us is that these types of worlds, these ice giants, these giant planets that are bigger than the Earth and around and smaller than Jupiter and Saturn, these are the most abundant planets in our galaxy, statistically speaking. And that's really important because that's a huge range and huge number of planets that we don't have much information about that we're trying to understand. So I want to talk a little bit about what we know about them, what we don't know about them, and what we're doing to try and learn a little bit more about these ice giants and these exo ice giants. So, so comment on that a little bit. Um, I mean, ice implies cold, and I would think there is some... I, I am about must to be define it for you, Hugh. Oh, right. My God. But Ke Kepler found zero ice giants. That, that was what I was going to say. person in a talk who asked that question, which appears on the next slide. Every time. Oh, show me the next slide, Anna. I, I can show you the next slide. On the next slide, you will see. Well, we're going to define um, ice giants. Not so, much a, not so much a question, more of a comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah. It was a comment, to be it fair. It was. It was a comment. Oh, my gosh. You are the worst. On the next slide, this isn't a, let's this define isn't what ice tour. giants are. So the ice giants of our solar system, Uranus and Neptune, represent the transition from an envelope dominated in mass by hydrogen and helium to one that's defined more by a solid or liquid ice, which is deeper in the atmosphere, formed by heavier elements. And now to astronomers, heavy elements is anything heavier than hydrogen and helium. So formed by these heavier materials, these larger atoms and molecules. Now, they still have hydrogen outer envelopes, but the mass of the planet is dominated by those deeper fluid-like oceans of heavy, icy material and probably and possibly a rocky core. Now, that definition not only applies to the ice giants in our solar system, but also applies to these so-called super earths and mini neptunes where you see that transition from the jupiter-like saturn-like hydrogen helium mass dominated planets to planets that are dominated by heavier elements in their mass but still have hydrogen envelopes around them of various degrees now this opens two questions at what point does the transition happen in mass from a hydrogen dominated mass to an icy or heavier element dominated mass? And what, tra what point defines the transition from an icy dominated mass to a rock dominated mass? And those are the two massive questions that we're trying to answer right now. So in terms of, you know, the comment from Hugh about, well, how are they the same thing? How can we compare Uranus and Neptune, these ice giants, where they're made of crystals, like we see in their atmosphere, crystalline methane, we see crystalline ammonia. The methane is really giving it its color. We see these cloud materials. We know deep down in the atmosphere there has to be sequestered, you know, ionized, fluid, icy material. But these planets that we're looking at, that Kepler's discovered, they're all much closer to their stars. They're all much hotter. So how can something hot be called an ice giant? And it's all about the definition that you use there. And this is the problem with the English language, is that definition of ice, when it comes to this kind of material, is things that would have, during the formation process of a planet, been a solid or a liquid that would have been eaten up by that planet as it was forming. So that planet, while it was forming, for it to be classified under this definition of an ice giant, 
would contain a lot of these heavier elements in its atmosphere, which were ices at the time that it acquired them. So that's really that boundary of definition that we're talking about, this hydrogen-dominated mass versus this heavier element-dominated mass. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the definition that I think holds the best between the solar system planets that we see and the transitions we see in our solar system and these transitions that we see in exoplanets, which are far smoother um, and far less defined at the same time. So Hugh, what, what do you think about that? I, I mean, to be fair, I've never seen or used Ice Giant in the context of an exoplanet. I only ever see Super Earth, Neptune, Jupiter, or Earth, Earth, right? right. So I think that this, this, this definition of Ice Giant is exclusively solar system. And we, we kind of haven't had a chance to apply it extrasolary. Extra, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. And, and the word often. Ice Giant is is very much tied to our solar system, 100% tied to our solar system, in that we're trying to make some connection between the planets we have in our solar system and those that we're discovering. And the connection yeah. here is the size and the mass of those planets. So when we're talking about ice giants, if we head out to exoplanets, we're talking about things that have a radius somewhere between 1.6 and four times the radius of the Earth, where, where Neptune's four times the radius of the Earth. And we're talking about something that has a mass between 10 and 100 times the mass of the Earth, where Neptune and, and Uranus have about 17 times the mass of the Earth. So we're talking about a very broad range of planets that we try to identify with what we call and classify as our ice giants in the solar system. But what I think is really important about this description is that it fundamentally comes down to the composition of that planet. And I think that that's something that we're trying to understand about exoplanets and something that I find really interesting about our solar system ice giants and trying to understand them. So just to take a little bit of a closer look at Neptune and Uranus, Uranus and Neptune, uh, depends on which way around you wanna come at our solar system from. Uh, the ice giants in our solar system are quite similar to each other. They're, as I mentioned, similar in mass and radius. They both have similar interior rotation periods of around 17 hours. And they both have winds that whip around the atmosphere over 900 miles per hour. So put, to put that in context, Earth's strongest hurricane force winds were around 300 miles per hour. And that was at a very specific localized point so we're talking about very 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 fast winds in these atmospheres now both of these planets uh, appear bluish greenish in color um, and this is actually caused by very very small amounts of methane in their atmospheres so very small amounts of a molecule can have a big effect on the color that we see of the atmosphere because it depends on what kind of colors and light it absorbs and scatters. So our eyes have a very specific sensitivity profile uh, and that means that what we're seeing for Uranus and Neptune is caused by this methane uh, in the atmosphere and Neptune's actually a little bit bluer and we, we're trying to understand why Neptune is slightly darker than Uranus given their compositions are so similar. It might have something to do with an unknown absorber, which is kind of scattering light a little bit more, or it could have something to do with the depth that we're seeing in the atmosphere due to cloud formation and things. So there's still some things that we're trying to understand about the, the color of these planets. They both have ring systems. Uranus, if you think about pictures that you might have seen of Uranus, is often depicted with its rings, whereas Neptune is never really depicted with its rings at all. Uh, the similar thing you could say for, for Saturn and Jupiter. Jupiter also has a ring system. It's never, ever depicted with that ring system, whereas Saturn obviously very much is. Um, but the rings on uh, orbiting Uranus are very much thinner and more prominent in the infrared because they're made of very uh, icy, icy cold material. Now, both have what I find really interesting. And one of the questions that we got that people wanted to know about these ice giants is something about their magnetospheres and their, their magnetic fields. And both of them have incredibly complex and very poorly understood magnetic fields. And one of the things that is really interesting about both of their magnetic fields is they're actually shifted and tilted compared to the spin axis of the planets. So both have very asymmetric magnetospheres. And this is thought to come from um, rotating fluid in the interior, in the mantle of the, the planets themselves. 
And this fluid is thought to be ionized, which is causing the generation of this magnetic field. But the resultant asymmetry of that, why it's different on one side to another, and why it's tilted and shifted in such a way, is, is not been fully explained. So that's one of the mysteries that we have of both of these, these giant planets. But both of them, uh, when passed by Voyager in the late 80s, appeared fairly dull. And that was not a fault of the planet or the instrument. It was just a fault of the, the seasons and the perfect poor timing of it all. So people generally thought that these planets weren't very interesting, nothing really happened on them, they were quite... Uh, boring's the wrong word to use, but boring. And the what we've been learning since, and there's a, there's a program on Hubble, there's programs on the Keck telescopes, there's programs on huge number of telescopes, and even amateur astronomers who are making a huge impact in the exoplanet world are making a big impact in studying these ice giants, trying to understand the rotation and storms on their, in their atmospheres, show lots of evidence that they, they have very active cycles of seasons. And those seasons just happen to be a lot longer than what we have here on Earth. In fact, Uranus's season's 45 years long. So it's a little bit tough to see those variations on the timescales that we're used to. So there's a lot that we need to understand and learn about the circulation of these atmospheres, these strange rotators, these very distant cold worlds, and, and how those materials interact with each other. So I think that there's a huge amount that we've learned about these planets, the Hubble Space Telescope has a program which spans many, many cycles, so many, many years, which is continuously going back and looking at these ice giants, trying to understand them. And that's one of the really, really important programs on Hubble right now, is just using that ability that telescope has to get detailed information about what's happening over these cycles in these atmospheres is going to really help with potential future missions, which we'll talk about in a bit. But I want to pivot, as this is an exocast, the exoplanet podcast, I want to pivot to what we're using these ice giants for in our solar system to try and look at these other exo ice giants, or let's ignore that term and call them the super earths and the mini Neptunes, these radius and mass size worlds, which are very similar to our ice giants in terms of their radius and mass only. Now, Based on the Kepler studies, we know there's over a, a thousand or so of them within the reach of our solar system. But out of these thousand or so, there's only a handful which are close enough or bright enough stars for us to be able to measure their atmospheres, so be, be able to learn a little bit more about these planets. And out of that handful we've looked at, they've really kind of thrown some spanners in the works about our definitions of these types of planets and trying to understand what's going on and how these planets formed. So a lot of the work that we've done has gone into understanding the amount of heavy elements in the atmosphere. So I said at the beginning that the, these, this definition is based on the amount of heavy elements the atmosphere has compared to the amount of material, the mass sequestered in the hydrogen helium. So we've been really trying to focus on trying to measure the amount of heavy elements in these atmospheres. Now, I said a handful, I mean three. We've measured three, small handful. Um, it's a really tough measurement to make. The smaller the planet, the harder it is to make. But out of those three planets, what we've learned is three different things. So one of those was, uh, sorry, there's somebody laughing loudly outside. So one of those was Happy 11b, which was shown to have roughly a similar amount of heavy elements compared to the solar system ice giants. So roughly a hundred times what the sun has. Next, we went to Happy 26b, which was shown to have far fewer expected heavy elements than Uranus and Neptune, just to really throw a spanner in the works. It's actually more similar to Jupiter and Saturn in terms of the amount of heavy elements it has in its atmosphere, but it's exactly the same mass as Neptune. And then we go to a slightly smaller, slightly heavier world, uh, GJ436, which is overabundant, or it seems to be overabundant in heavy elements, like a thousand times more than the sun. So we've got three examples in this very specific mass radius range of these 
Neptune-Uranus-sized worlds, which are dominated by hydrogen and helium, but have significant fraction of their mass in these ices, and they all show different things. So this is a really important area of phase space that we're looking at. And we're not only looking at it in terms of how many heavy elements they have, but how does their position, their location close to their star, so these are much hotter planets, like I said before, how does that affect these atmospheres? They're smaller mass planets. If we took Uranus and Neptune and stuck it right next to the sun, so 20 times closer than we are to the sun here on the Earth, if we put Uranus and Neptune there, what would happen to their atmospheres? And that's something that we're really learning about these, these exo-Neptunes and these, these mini-Neptunes. If we stick that planet right there, what's happening to the atmosphere? And in many cases, what we're able to measure is this escaping atmosphere, which we talked about on previous shows where you're seeing the hydrogen being ripped away from these planets by their stars. So there's a huge range of evolution in these planetary atmospheres as they come and they form in, the, in these ice giant-like ways where they're collecting icy material in their disk and then moving in towards their star and what happens to them as they do so, how they're losing that mass and how that might then increase the amount of heavy elements they have in their atmosphere as they lose the lighter ones. So there's a big evolutionary change across these super Earths and mini Neptunes for us to try and understand so that we can put them in the context of our ice giants and understand a little bit more, not only about these exoplanets, but a little bit more about the ice giants in our solar system in that context as well. And I think that really takes us to something I wanted to ask our exocasters. What do we want to learn about these planets? Where do we want to go? What do you think the next steps are in us being able to understand these, these worlds, these small worlds that we don't necessarily have that transition in our solar system for, and trying to understand our solar system planets a little bit more? I mean, I, I am, as ever, an advocate of statistics so one planet for me doesn't tell us anything because there might be special scenarios that that formed it in this position especially hot jupiters for example they all have this weird thing where they get thrown close to their star and maybe that changes the um the formation so what i'd like i'd love to see is statistics of the interior and the atmospheres of loads of things loads of different positions and distances and techniques even you could get atmospheres from direct imaging eventually when we have James Webb or, we, or not, maybe not James Webb but these ELTs um, we, we could get um, direct image, images of actual like cold ice giants and we could get like close in hot warm uh, Neptune planets from transmission spectroscopy with James Webb and compare the two and, and see what the differences are I think that's that's going to be really interesting to see in, in, in 10 years when we can have those two populations to compare. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've been looking forward to for a really long time. It was one of the final questions I got in my defense for my PhD is, well, how do you think we can link the different techniques that we've got? And the first thing I jumped to was, well, once we get direct imaging spectra of planets and we've got transiting planets that we're getting spectra of, where's that line? Where can we cross that line? And where can we try and understand those different populations of planets? And how can we build up basically just this massive repository of planetary spectra atmospheric spectra is really and Hugh as you know I'm all for the big numbers as well I'm all for the statistics it's I wish it was uh I wish we could get the thousands and thousands of planets that we've discovered and understand each and every one of their atmospheres right now uh we are at around 100 to 300 at a push that we can do something with not everything but something with in terms of trying to understand the atmospheres and you know bringing that all together is something that I know a lot of people certainly in the characterization field are really looking forward to really trying to put an idea of what what these are as a collective what about in the more general sense of of planet formation theory particularly linking the stellar metallicities to the planetary uh, heavy element abundances, right? That will probably allow us to at least explore why there's this huge discrepancy in very, very low metallicity planets to very, very high, uh, despite their, their very similar uh, characteristics or properties. So in, in terms of coming at, at this from the other side, uh, well, I guess it's the same side of it, uh, the other side of the coin, really, uh, in terms of knowing thy star, as we've, uh, we've already <laughs> mentioned uh, once on the, on the show today. It always comes in, doesn't it? 
it's we've always got to know these stars and one of the things that we do know is that these hot jupiters these giant planets do exist around more metal rich stars and it's very hard to find a statistical sample of planets that we can study the atmospheres of around metal poor stars you know it's something that we're looking into and trying to work out how we can do that and see what kind of numbers we've got but the the difference in the metallicity of the stars themselves is not very dramatic it's not dramatic in terms of the types of numbers we would expect for the changes between a Jupiter-like planet and a Neptune-like planet, where it goes from four to a hundred times solar, where whereas the planet, the stars themselves vary from about I don't know what is it minus three to like ten times solar, so it's that requires lots of different types of stars which requires lots of different types of planets around those lots of different types of stars. And I don't think we're there statistically yet in terms of the discovered planets for perhaps things around giant stars. I know Kelt's trying real hard to get those giant stars, which have a big range in metallicities. Well, I, I think one problem there is that there aren't enough hot Jupiters. Oh, well, yeah. Even, like, there's probably only, like... I don't know. There's currently a few hundred hot Jupiters brighter than tenth magnitude around stars brighter than tenth oh, magnitude. Okay. So if you put so a limit on that, you won't. Yeah. You will never find enough to do these statistical samples if you want to cut them up in into, into as many boxes as you can, which is a shame. I believe there's yeah. also a um, a catalogue, the Hypatia catalogue, which is which is trying to connect the, the the planet characteristics and the stellar abundances. Unless I'm misrepresenting that, I think it's Dr. Natalie Hinkles managing that, uh, but certainly something to that might be a, a useful resource for this kind of work. Yeah, and I think coming at it from the other direction, so I always tend to approach our solar system from an exoplanet direction of going, how can I use all of these worlds to understand our solar system? But there are things we can do locally, which do help a lot. And having a mission that goes to the ice giants is going to be instrumental in understanding what these type of atmospheres are, what we're even looking for. The first thing we do with exoplanets, we have to know what we're looking for. And right now, to be honest, we don't know the specifics of what we're looking for and how we can make those definitions more exact or more comparable to what we're observing out there. So the only way to do that is to send something to orbit. And as you said, that would only be the second ever spacecraft to do so. Right. Yeah. So it's it's not like um you know we we're tapped out with our orbiters there yet. <laughs> I mean, come on, so, let's just go back. Let's just go and actually orbit and actually understand what these planets are like over a long time period. I think that we learned so much from Cassini, and we're learning a huge amount from Juno that we just didn't know before. That is amazing, and I I would love to love to see that in my lifetime. Yeah, there's unknown yeah. unknowns, as well as some known unknowns that we could we could answer. There was actually a meeting here in LAM just a couple of weeks ago on uh, a possible future ESA-NASA joint mission out to the, the, the outer solar system to, to explore Neptune and Uranus, possibly put um, probes into each of the atmospheres. And I had a discussion with someone who, I didn't actually go myself, but, but we were talking about, well, obviously NASA are going to go to Neptune. And the reason is that NASA doesn't want the press of being seen to put a probe in Uranus. <laughs> um, whereas in Europe, in Europe, that doesn't, you know, it's, it's not a ton à nu or, or the French equivalent. So the, the Europeans don't care so much about going to Uranus. Perfect. So I, th I can genuinely see that happening. So well to get yeah. through the segment up to this point without really mentioning that. <laughs> little, bit of, little bit of mocking is needed. Uh, that's yeah. ridiculous, but I love it. Okay. That's true. Yeah, I think we, yeah, I think we just need to come up for a different word than probe. <laughs> with that I think that wraps up that segment quite nicely and we should possibly move on to the exoplanet news this month so Hugh why don't you why don't you grace us with the what's been going on sure well um gotta start with tests there were nine new test planets by my count on the archive although I won't go through them all um, I thought I'd focus on the kind of tessiest one of the ball which is called L98 or an L9859. So this is a nearby M dwarf, exactly the sort of uh, star that Tess was actually hoping it might find moist Earth-sized planets around. Because Tess's small cameras mean that unlike Kepler, it wouldn't be able to find habitable zone planets around like stars like the Sun. But these M dwarfs are kind of the perfect um, training ground for, for Tess's 
uh, ability to find planets. So after two sectors of observations of this um, L9859, there were three planets found, um, indeed Earth-sized in radius, so 0.7, 1.3 and 1.4 Earth radii um, respectively, but ex extremely close to their stars on orbits of about two, four and eight days um, these orbit, giving them kind of Venus or Mercury-like levels of solar irradiance. So not quite Earth-like yet. Um, and the reason I say yet is because this plant, this this solar system is going to appear in another five sectors of test data. So we could expect to see not only uh, TTV masses, because two of these planets are in resonance, so we might see the gravitational interaction in their orbits, um, but we might also find some more planets in that system further out, which could um, potentially be those those kind of key um, habitable zone M dwarf planets that TESS is kind of desperately searching for. Um, and TESS isn't only contributing to science by new finding new planets, it's also doing a lot of science on old ones. So uh, in the case of WASP-4b, WASP uh, very old, because this hot Jupiter is an 11-year-old planet, if we count since publication, which is practically retirement age in terms of transiting planets. <laughs> um, Pretty much, so, yeah. um, so when Luke Boomer and co. looked at the transits of WASP-4b and TESS, they found that they were arriving way earlier than predicted, a full 82 seconds earlier than, than the previous data would have suggested they were they should the planet should appear to transit its star. Um, so that makes it only the second clear case of an exoplanet's orbit decaying like this. Uh, in, in this case, only a, a mere 12 milliseconds per planetary orbit. So this is a really uh, minute um, measurement. Uh, and this usually happens for the same reason, but kind of opposite sign, that the Moon's orbit is increasing from the Earth. So because of tidal interaction between the bodies, uh, but in this case, the star is pulling the planet in. And eventually that pull is going to um, destroy the planet because those It'll bring it close enough to rip it apart. But that's not for a few hundreds of millions of years anyway. Um, although actually they, they do mention that a gravitational tug of an outer body and the sort of like TTVs that we see could also be the source. But it seems more likely given this star, this planet is so close to its star that it's um, being pulled in tidally. And with TESS monitoring almost all of these other retired hot Jupiters, you know, the 10-year-old systems where we have 10 years of data, we could expect to see this this um, effect for a handful of other planets. Um, this month we also have another star we can add to the collection of things that go dip in the night. <laughs> so this time, uh, and it's quite serious, this time a young M-dwarf was seen to be nearly swallowed by a dark, mysterious blob, dropping more than 80% of its brightness for nearly a day. So a planetary companion shrouded in disk, possibly a moon-forming dust, uh, is one suspect, but Rappaport et al. would like to question any other loose dust stream seen in the upper Scorpius area around MJD 1348. Uh, any other witnesses of stolen flux should contact the archive immediately. Um, <laughs> oh, that's excellent. <laughs> don't have I wish everybody uh, listening could have seen Hugh's face, the seriousness of which he delivered that for <laughs> Very dour. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like that paper, though. It's, it's really weird, this, uh, this shark bite kind of dip that, out of the star's flux. And I thought I'd quickly cover another RV planet that kind of got lost in, in this month's uh, exoplanet coverage, which is Gliese 411b, or 411b. Um, and with, with most stars that are Gliese, um, they're in the Gliese catalogue of nearby M-dwarfs. So this is a relatively close-by bright M-dwarf that's been covered in, in many RV surveys. And in this case, the SOFI spectrograph, combined with some other data, um, found a 12.2-day signal, apparently from a three-Earth mass planet. Um, so this is quite a small planet on a on a. Um, it's kind of more likely to be Venus-like, so it receives Venus-like flux from its star than than Earth-like. Um, but at only 2.5 light years, uh, no, only 2.5 parsecs. It means that only uh, Proxima and Barbie, sorry, Barnard B, are nearer. So actually, it's the third closest exoplanetary system yet, yet found. Oh, there we go. Which is pretty cool. And who knows? Tests might observe it and see it's a transit in the next few months. And I thought I'd briefly, br briefly cover all of the um, Astro 2020 white papers that hit the archive. Oh, okay. Although I'm not... Briefly. I'm not that side... <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm not that side of the Atlantic, so I don't really care. <laughs> no, um, 
So, um, so yeah. So Astro Twenty Twenty is is kind of uh, NASA's plan for the next decade of astrophysics, if I if I have that correct. And so um, there were a load of proposals as to how NASA should should move forward into the next uh, decade, into the twenty twenties, and what should be built in terms of spacecraft and and how we should uh, spend our time and money as astronomers. Um, to improve science. So this, the, the reports that I saw in the archive included everything from astroseismology, exoplanet microlensing, citizen science contributions, um, observing uh, using extremely large telescopes, uh, small planets, large planets, young planets, um, planets with di or disks that might be forming planets. Um, there was a cluster of uh, white papers on exoplanet space weather and things like um, extreme ultraviolet and ultraviolet observations of exoplanets in their atmospheres. And there were a whole host on brown dwarfs as well. Uh, and also astrostatistics on RVs. The list kind of goes on and, you know, check it out on the archive. I think I counted uh, something like 20 on the archive. Although I note that I didn't see any transit-based um, kind of white papers. So maybe our community is too busy playing with real test data to write these kind of proposals. But it is slightly worrying that, that there's no uh, transit detection kind of based... Uh, white papers as, as far as I could see. So the white paper calls come out in different chunks. So the white paper call that was a very science driven white paper call. Uh, there's another one which is instrument driven. So specifically looking at what kind of results in specific instruments or planned instruments might come up with. There's another call which goes towards science and society, which is happening right now. Um, and there's a number of different types of white paper calls that go out in staggered wow. chunks. Um, the science one was a really big chunk of that. Uh, in terms of what people feel like needs to happen and a lot of them don't go up on the archive I know a lot of them haven't yet but will do soon so I think sure. that there's just a massive like you said you just went through a huge list of things this community is so broad there's so many different things we can do with exoplanets it's amazing that it's just amazing what's happened in 25 years I just yeah certainly I think actually Mast was ho was hosting a spreadsheet uh, with links to all of them as well. Uh, oh, which I, I didn't think see it's public. Um, I just did a Astro Twenty Twenty search on ADS and found a lot. <laughs> um, and that doesn't really wrap up all the amazing papers that, that the community represented, but it does wrap up, wrap up my new segment for this month. But I'm sure there'll be many more in the next thirty days. Great, thanks. Um, okay, well, on to my second favourite part of the show. Not that I don't love chatting with, uh, with uh, Hannah and Hugh, obviously, um, but I love hearing about our, our guests' favourite planets, uh, and particularly um, which planet they're going to add into our wacky and weird adopted exocast family. So uh, this month, of course, is our guest's choice. That's Jesse Dotson. So, Jesse, uh, which planet have you chosen and why? Okay, so um, I have chosen Kepler... 1658 B, or as or as I like to call it, uh, KOI four. And uh, this is it's a uh, let's see it's a like big Jupiter-sized planet around a large evolved star on a three point eight five day orbit. But it's not the planet itself so much why I'm putting it into the Hall of Fame. It's more what getting that planet to the confirmed stage teaches us about exoplanet science and exoplanet discovery. So to back up a bit, uh, when Kepler was launched, there were three known uh, planets in the field of view. And so when we started assigning uh, KOI numbers or Kepler object of interest numbers, the, the three that we already knew were KOI1, KOI2, KOI3. And so KOI-4 was really the first uh, exoplanet candidate signal that we identified in the Kepler data early days on. Um, but it was, uh, it showed a bit of a secondary eclipse when the planet went behind the star. And that was too large to be consistent with uh, the planet hypothesis. And so it was kind of put aside. And it kind of went on and off lists uh, for years, and uh, a couple of years ago, a um, Ashley Chantos, a graduate student at University of Hawaii, was you know had got a project to go through and do astroseismology of all of the uh, KOI hosts, and she did an astroseismology on uh, KOI four, and realized that the star wasn't 
a solar-like main sequence star, but it was actually a giant evolved star, which then meant that the planet candidate was much larger and was actually consistent with having a secondary eclipse. And so then they went and did the ground follow-up and uh, confirmed it. And the, uh, uh, the paper to confirm uh, KOI-4 was actually released the same week as the Kepler conference. So here we are 10 years after launch, we finally get to confirm the first planet candidate. And I think that, you know, the lessons to learn there about, you know, how fresh eyes on old data, you know, we can really find new things in it. And also an object lesson in how important the stellar parameters are to understanding exoplanets. So know thy star, as they say. Exactly. So that, that might be a little bit of a, of a uh, unusual reason to nominate something to the Hall of Fame, but um, sometimes you learn as much about how to do science as you learn about the objects themselves, I think. And we're always happy to welcome Jupiter's in there. Love yes, and of course, of course, for Hannah. Hannah loves the hot Jupiters. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know Hugh has, um, you know, we've done several segments actually about killing exoplanets, uh, which were basically a nice clickbait title uh, in terms of, you know, confirming or, or, or not confirming planet candidates. So we had some idea about, you know, the, the cycle of how, of how the confirmation works, but having that your insight and that kind of personal insight into this is the first potential candidate that's taken 10 years. It's a really nice narrative, nice and, nice and neat. <laughs> Which number do you want us to put in there though? KOI4 or put the official Kepler number in there? Just put both in. Uh, you should probably put both in, but I will always think of it as KOI4. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. That goes first then. Yeah, that's a great choice. I'm looking forward for Tess to observe it because it, like uh, WASP-4, it's one of these hot Jupiters that looks like it might be decaying, its orbit might be decaying. And Tess observing it six, seven years after it'll been seen by Kepler, it's going to have changed its period and be slowly creeping towards being eaten by its star. Nice. So uh, we get to observe that process with, with KOI-4, which is quite yeah, cool. Yeah, that'll be pretty exciting. And it's, it's a, the KOI-4 star is bright enough that, and the planet's big enough, it should work quite well with Tess. Um, okay, and uh, with that, we add uh, Kepler 1658 slash uh, KOI4 to the uh, adopted planet list and say thank you to Jesse for selecting it and being on the show again. I was very glad to be here. Well, thanks so much for joining us for another installment of Exocast. We're going to return next month with more exciting exoplanetary news and views, and I'm going to be joined by another special guest. Until then, you can check out all of our previous shows on the website, exocast.org, and on iTunes, and all good podcasting apps. And you can follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast, and like us on Facebook, although we don't post there very often. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. I think your freestyling is better than any of us. <laughs> <laughs>